Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half an hour. Now, for those of you who have been following the show, uh, either live or online, you'll have heard us uh, interview Ezra Levant last week. Ezra Levant being a Sun News Network host. He's a columnist. Uh, he's a very talented author. I would I would highly recommend his book Shakedown to any of our listeners, where he discusses uh, the human rights commissions here in Canada and how they've been active in restricting freedom of speech based on on perceived offense or political correctness. And as I was interviewing Ezra Levant, I was re- I was really thinking about uh, another one of uh, his his compatriots in this fight for freedom of speech. And that's a man named Mark Stein. Now, Mark Stein will be will be immediately recognizable to most of you as as an incredible author, columnist. Um, he calls himself the one-man global content provider. If you go to his website, steinonline.com, and he really is. He comments on on everything from from demographics to uh, to politics to economics uh, to Broadway shows. He's even got a CD out uh, where where he's he's singing with one of his friends. So he's really quite an incredible pundit, especially in terms of just how much how much he talks about. Several years ago, he published a, a book called America Alone: The End of the World as We Know It. And this book really went through uh, the, the demographics and, the, and changing demographics and basically talked about how Europeans uh, and, and Western culture in general had given up on having kids. Uh, they decided they were no longer going to have kids. They were contracepting them, they were aborting them, or they just weren't having them altogether. And Mark Stein's thesis was the fact that in Muslim countries, people were having enormous numbers of kids, uh, and here we were having none. Many of those people were immigrating uh, to Europe and increasingly North America that we were seeing slowly but surely uh, Western culture beginning to lose currency simply based on the fact that we weren't having any children to preserve that culture. Now, uh, back when I was in, in university, I, I worked for a newspaper called The Jewish Independent, and I just finished reading uh, the book America Alone when The Jewish Independent gave me this incredible opportunity. They said, Mark Stein's coming to town to speak at a Hillel banquet, Hillel being a, uh, a, a nationwide campus, a, ca- a Jewish campus group that I also worked for as well as, as director for, for outreach on Israeli issues. And uh, they said, do you want to interview him? I said, that would just be, that would be fantastic. I was really excited about it. So I got to interview Mark Stein for a while. We ended up chatting on the phone and I ended up just asking him all sorts of random questions, questions that I wanted, I wanted to have answered, even though I didn't really need them for the interview. And uh, when I was thinking this week about what to chat with you guys about, I was thinking, do you know what? Uh, This is one of the perfect topics to discuss because, you know, Demographics are extraordinarily important, but something almost nobody looks at. Even though we're facing in many, many European countries what's known as the upside-down family tree. Four grandparents, two parents, one kid. Uh, In Japan, the sale of adult diapers is now outstripping the sale of child diapers. This is an enormous problem, and if you look around the world, you simply cannot be aborting this many children and expect there to be no consequences. There's not. Even here in Canada, if you take a look at the number of immigrants the Canadian government says that we need versus the amount of children that we've aborted since 1969, that number is scarily close together. And the reason for this is that, that a, a nation that aborts its own children, and, and here in Canada, a nation that, that funds the abortion of its own children, is at its very, very heart a nation without a future. A nation, a nation without children has no future. Because 
inevitably you're going to need more taxpayers to sustain your society. And if you're having those killed off and you're using the dollars of the current taxpayers to kill off the taxpayers who will make the future dollars, this is nothing less than a narcissistic, hedonistic, and extremely suicidal culture. So as I was thinking back, I thought, well, you know what, I'm just going to play you a few clips from my discussion with Mark Stein and, and, and let him share his insights with you as well. So uh, without further ado, uh, this is the famous author, columnist, uh, and commentator Mark Stein. So just a couple of questions for you. What has been the, uh, do you think has been the most significant change in your life uh, since the publishing of America Alone, besides, of course, uh, your charges at various Canadian human rights tribunals? <laughs> well, uh, I would say the biggest uh, personal change is that I, uh, I've become a controversial figure in, in the sense that I, uh, uh, I never expected uh, to. I don't think of myself as especially controversial. Uh, but you realize that although the book did uh, did very well for me and uh, uh, has uh, obviously um, enriched my bank accounts uh, mm. uh, to a certain extent and all that kind of thing, you realize that uh, uh, one consequence of that is that it's uh, it's kind of moved me into a slightly different category from uh, where I was before. And um, and I regret that. In a, in a sense, I regret... Uh, I regret becoming a, a controversial figure. I don't think of myself in that way, and I don't think of the book as, as particularly controversial. I think it's uh, what it describes is happening before our very eyes. Uh, but at a time when uh, free speech is under assault in uh, very liberal nations like the Netherlands, Sweden, uh, Denmark, Germany, and France, and the United Kingdom, and of course Canada too, um, at, at such a time, it doesn't take an awful lot to be controversial. And by controversial, mostly people mean uh, raising subjects that you'd rather they didn't talk about. But, I, but it is a small loss. If you're someone like me who left, if, if, if uh, history hadn't taken a particular turn, I'd, I'd be someone who likes uh, easy listening music and, uh, and Broadway shows and the idea that I'm some kind of extremist, foaming controversialist is uh, is very perplexing to me. How is your uh, family code with your newfound, uh, shall I call it, notoriety? Well, we cope as uh, everybody. I mean, I don't. I don't even like talking about this because I think a lot of that stuff just encourages people. But um, you know, I I think you do. You have to be. You have to be more serious uh, in your approach uh, to certain aspects of life. Uh, you always have to be careful uh, with controversial, so-called controversialists, whether they're just a, a, a lot of sort of soft fascist bullies like the people who shut down Christy Blatchford uh, the other day, mm -hmm. uh, or whether they're actually someone more determined. I don't, you know, I don't even, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not... The problem in the Western world today isn't, is, isn't very difficult to figure out, which is that um, a lot of people are content to live in fear. When the Washington Post yanked uh, a very anodyne cartoon that didn't show Mohammed, didn't show Mohammed at all. It was like a parody of Where's Waldo, but the point was Mohammed wasn't in it. They yanked this very anodyne campaign, cartoon, and what the Washington Post said was that they were willing to live in fear. Uh, that's what a lot of the mainstream media institutions of the Western world are telling, uh, are telling the thugs and bullies. Well, I'm not prepared to live in fear. So 
I want to. I'm just getting on my with my life, and uh, I'm happy to get on with my life. And uh, uh, if uh, if some bozo has a problem with that, uh, that's his problem, not mine. But I'm I'm going to get on with my life, and I do. And I'm not like the Washington Post. I'm not willing to live in fear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, both Ian Hersey Ali and, and Tarek Fatah have both recently published books, uh, Nomad and The Jew Is Not My Enemy, in, in which they pose strategies for combating Islamist hatred. Um, for Ian Hersey Ali, and I was quite shocked to read this, she suggests proselyta- uh, proselytization by moderate Christians. And in the case of Tarek Fatah, he proposes that Israel has to withdraw from the West Bank before anti-Semitism can uh, be combated. Uh, what, what is your take on these strategies? Well, if you're asking me, is it either or? I think Ayan has uh, has a, a uh, uh, has a better take on the situation, and but she she is not a uh, practicing Christian. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, by the way, I, what I found odd about this, what, what would strike most previous generations as odd about your remark was that you were shocked by it, because the idea of proselytizing for the faith you hold. Uh, is for, for, for Christians, uh, Christianity claims to be a universalist religion, and it went all over the world, and it did proselytize uh, mm-hmm. for its faith. Uh, I think the first uh, the first um, uh, Bible written in an Indian language uh, it dates back to the uh, 1600s. You know, in other words, uh, Christianity was in this game a long time. Uh, and it's only recently that we think it entirely normal, for example, for Christian churches to apologize for having uh, converted um, uh, members of Canada's First Nations to, to the Christian faith. We, we, we would think this perfectly normal for any religion with universalist claims, which both Christianity and Islam have. Um, now... Uh, so, 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 uh, so, in a sense, Ayan is just proposing what what uh, almost any uh, any sentient part of the Christian Church would have thought as a normal part of its mission mm-hmm. up till a generation or two back. And it's only because she now sounds more of a muscular Christian than, say, the Archbishop of Canterbury does, or the uh, the heads of the United Church of Canada do, that that that's the only reason you sound so shocked by it, because that's that's not the way people talk. But but um, I think I think uh, that's that's more likely to be a viable strategy uh, than anything in in that Tarek Fatah is proposing to do with settlements. I mean, we all know, and he knows. He's too smart not to know that the argument uh, that is going on uh, in uh, in Israel uh, is not is not a land dispute. It's not a border dispute. It's not like two farmers. Uh, who uh, border each other in uh, some bit of rural British Columbia, arguing about where where the fence line is. That's that's not what this is about. Uh, Ayan Hersiali is right to the extent that this is a what this is part of a broader ideological struggle. And if you're up against an ideology that has tremendous appeal tremendous appeal to large numbers of people in the Western world, you've got to have something to counter it. As I said, she's an atheist. Mm-hmm. But she understands that if you're a practicing atheist, it's, it's easier to be a practicing atheist uh, in a pluralist society built on the Judeo-Christian inheritance than it is to be an atheist in a Muslim society. Uh, that's simply a fact of life. And, mm-hmm. uh, and recognizing that in that sense, even a, a practicing atheist, or if you can practice being an atheist, but, you know, whatever, even, even an atheist 
uh, has, uh, and this is what she gets that, say, other atheists like uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins don't. Even an atheist has his atheism, uh, his atheism is more secure in certain types of societies than others, and therefore his, his hostility uh, to, to faith in general uh, is not helpful in that regard, and he ought to be a bit uh, pickier and choosier about where he directs his, uh, his uh, anti-theocratic wrath. Now, I'm sure you'll all agree that this, is, this, this information is, is really sobering and really eye-opening. Uh, but what does Mark Stein think about abortion? What does Mark Stein actually believe when it comes to whether or not abortion contributes to this or whether or not abortion is something that our, our Western culture should actually celebrate and permit? Well, in spite of the fact that I was interviewing him for the Jewish Independent, I actually asked him that very question. You know, pro, whether, whether or not you can't, it's very difficult to persuade people to oppose abortion if they do not regard it as murder. Uh, so, so if they do not regard it as murder, they do not see it as a moral question. And if they do not see it as a moral question, then it just becomes one element in the rather sort of narcissist hedonism of uh, the Western world at twilight. Uh, but, but when you frame it in those terms, simply as an incremental matter, uh, simply as, as a um, utilitarian matter, the state has no uh, the state has no interest in discouraging uh, Western women to abort their babies. I mean, why why do, why why does anyone think that the uh, the, the uh, that Europe uh, needs um, huge numbers of Muslim immigrants supposedly to keep its welfare state in business? Because they're the children that Europeans couldn't be bothered having themselves. A third of German women are childless. You, uh, there are there are practical aspects to uh, matters like uh, abortion. But if, if, the, if what is lazy, and, uh, and as I said, if, if, if a woman does not accept that aborting her baby is a, is a moral question and an act of murder, then it's very difficult to persuade her that it is. But if you just take your average dopey Western feminist at, at a, a university campus in uh, North America, say, um, and she, uh, she, she thinks that uh, she's concerned about patriarchy, and so when you form the pro-life club, you're just enforcing your backward patriarchal views on her. Uh, <laughs> if she thinks you're like the big stern domineering patriarch, she, she ought to wait 20 or 30 years in the average Canadian city, and she'll be figuring out what the people in Amsterdam and Brussels and Malmo and Paris are beginning to figure out right now, that there's a whole far more motivated breed of patriarchal is going to be walking around those cities. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what these. Uh, that that's that, that's what the kind of dopey, clapped out, cobwebbed, uh, 1960s feminist doesn't get. That it's an indulgence, and the indulgence only works for a generation or two, and then a whole bunch of other people uh, take over and rebuild the and rebuild the future that you weren't interested in building yourself. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, the fact that you have uh, your book has gained so, so much attention, along with like several other people that I, I, I've mentioned, have gained such attention in the media, shows that you are having an impact on how people view Islamization? Do you think that we're slowly moving toward a greater awareness of, of what either will be our future or very much looks like it will be? Yes, I, I think so. I mean, obviously, nobody writes a book, uh, a dystopian vision of the future, in the hopes that it will come true. You write it in the hopes that people will take action uh, to prevent it coming true. I certainly would not want my children uh, to live in an Islamic society. 
I'm sorry. When people say, I think it was uh, an MDP lady said on the radio in Canada uh, a year or two back, she said, well, what would be so wrong if Canada became Muslim? Uh, well, that's that's uh, that's uh, that's not uh, that doesn't have to be a hypothetical question. If there's nothing wrong about it, maybe the NDP la- lady should think about what Muslim country uh, she'd be happy living in right now. I've been to a big bunch of them. I I find Morocco rather uh, agreeable. I find Malaysia agreeable. I find Jordan tolerable. But would I want to uh, raise my children in those societies? No, because uh, uh, because those societies uh, systemically uh, prevent uh, prevent people from fulfilling uh, their human potential and living their lives to the fullest. And I I simply would not wish that fate on my on my daughter particularly. And when an NDP lady goes on the radio in Canada and says it as if it's just a sort of another exciting exotic menu option in the great Canadian multi multicultural uh, 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 menu of delights, um, I I think I think I think she's I think that I think that is such a banal way of looking at it. Uh, and the tragedy is. Uh, that 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 young woman will live long enough to see the folly and stupidity uh, of her ways. So, do you think the best way to combat this then, then besides uh, making the Western public aware, um, I, I've I've been to the Palestinian territories and Jordan and these places, and right. so the views some of them have, as as I'm sure you're well aware, are, are so deep seated that sometimes I I get kind of depressed and I'm like, well, how could we ever change these points of view that are so entrenched? Do you think that secular education would make any difference or no you have first of all you have to be in the game the saudis are are in the business of uh, exporting ideology not oil people think it's oil but oil in fact just gives them the cash to fund the export of the ideology the iranians export ideology with huge success all over the planet we don't we don't. You see this in the, uh, the stupid report in uh, whatever newspaper is it, the National Post today, where um, where the uh, basically or uh, where basically people say, uh, oh, uh, the big chunk of Islam is self-segregating, uh, but this doesn't have to be. Why why is this a problem any more than the Mennonites are? Well, the big difference, of course, is that Islam is your primary supplier of new Canadians. Uh, whereas Mennonites are, uh, are a marginal contribution to Canadian demography, uh, the so so. But but what but what that report is basically saying is, as long as guys don't blow up skyscrapers, as long as they're not flying planes into skyscrapers, they're not a problem. No, that, that, that's an absolutely idiotic way of looking at it. The fact is that uh, uh, Islam, a big chunk of Islam, has figured out that the smart thing to do is not to fly planes into skyscrapers, uh, that, if, if, that, that the Western world is so decadent and decayed, they'll give you the keys to those skyscrapers uh, in, in, uh, in 10, 20, 30 years' time. So why bother flying planes into what's going to be your own property if you play your cards right? It's, it's fascinating to see, uh, I think he's the... Um, chief of the general staff in uh, in britain talking about the struggle says the struggle against uh, islamic radicalism can't be won uh, but it can be contained now again he's thinking too narrowly because he's thinking about guns and bombs 
And it's not about guns and bombs. It's about ideas. It's about ideas that are particularly harmful uh, to Western societies. And if you're not, uh, if you're not in the, if, when you're up against an ideology uh, and you don't fight back on ideological grounds, you are going to lose. You talk about these uh, people in Palestinian schools. They're being raised in a death cult. Uh, you, you look at people who are far from that particular, uh, that particular part of the world and just, say, studying in Saudi-funded schools in, say, Virginia. And they're also learning, being, uh, they're also, in a sense, being engineered not to be functioning members of Western societies. Why aren't we in the game? You look at the amount of useless money the United States government throws away on so-called intelligence so that large numbers of CIA bureaucrats can sit around monitoring emails from outer space all day long. Uh, if you took a tiny proportion of that budget and used it to wage a serious ideological pushback against this, uh, every corner where Islam has made advances in recent years, it would do so much more good. But unless we're in the game, unless we're fighting this in, in, on the ideological front, we're going to lose. So we have to fight there, essentially, could you call it cultural imperialism almost? Well, I don't, I don't, think, of it, I don't think of it as imperialism. Uh, uh, I, think, I think of it more in terms of broad uh, cultural confidence. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, because for one thing, I think if you push ahead to, say, 2030, by about 2030, about a third of the world is going to be Muslim. A third of the world's population will be Muslim. They will have, apart from a few Saudi sheikhs uh, whoring in, uh, in, in uh, Mayfair, uh, that third of the world will own almost none of its wealth. So it will have huge incentives uh, to spill its bounds from, from whether in Niger or Yemen and pour across the frontiers into Europe and anywhere else and take what it can get. The idea that, that the, the global order we enjoy today, the free market system, the prosperity, the uh, longevity, the health uh, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and cultural indulgences we enjoy today would survive in that world is absolutely insane. So we're not talking about a long time away. We're, we're if, you're, if, uh, if you were born at the turn of the century, by the time you're a 30-year-old man, the world you know will be kaput unless we understand that these things we value, like property rights, uh, like freedom of expression, arise from a relatively narrow tradition in human affairs, and that a big chunk of the world, unless they're sold on its virtues very quickly, are not going to be interested in uh, are not going to be interested in them uh, when they when they're dominating the planet uh, in uh, in 20 years' time. Ladies and gentlemen, that was commentator and author Mark Stein uh, discussing demographics, discussing abortion, uh, discussing the tailspin of the West. Now, if you'd like to read more of his commentary, and I, I would really would encourage you to, I think in North America, he's probably second to none as, as a commentator. Uh, I, he has, has sort of the same flair to some degree as, uh, as the British commentator Peter Hitchens, but he's not nearly as depressed. He, he is, in fact a happy warrior in many ways, as he actually calls himself. But if you want to read more of his stuff, go to steinonline.com and take a look at what he's got featured there. Uh, his, his last two books 
or at least the two top best-selling books that he's come out with that I would really recommend are America Alone, The End of the World as We Know It, and then his follow-up book to that, which is The End of America, Get Ready for Armageddon. Both of these books, I think, are really essential reading, just uh, based on, one, how they're written, and two, the information that they convey. As, as uh, American pundit Ann Coulter said, nobody can write about the end of the world and still keep you laughing, but that's Mark Stein. He's incredibly talented. His, his writing has been complimented by uh, Christopher Hitchens, Martin Amos. And obviously the uh, the hundreds of thousands of people who have decided to pick up his book. So I hope this really does help to put abortion in context a bit for you as well, because we're often tempted to take a look at the battle in front of us, and it's it's a very it's a very micro a micro thing, right? We're talking uh, two women who who want to have abortions, and we're trying to talk them out of it. We're looking at abortion as a matter of personal choice, but convincing people to make the right one. But abortion is in many cases a, a much more insidious procedure as well and when an entire society decides that that abortion is something to be embraced and when an entire society decides that it can start aborting its own children on a mass scale uh, we end up with scary demographic trends like those described by mr stein now in the united states about 1.2 million children every year are being aborted in canada it's over 100,000. this just simply is unsustainable there there's no there's really no way around it so I hope you all enjoyed this interview, and and next week we have another really fascinating interview coming up for you all. So I hope you'll join us again on AM 5.30 at 1.30 p.m. Again, my name is Jonathan Van Meren. I'd like to thank you all so much for tuning in this week and listening, and we hope you have a great week.